G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm excited to be chatting to Bryce Holdaway, the partner at Empower Wealth, a very successful buyer's agency and advisory based out of Melbourne, and he's the co-host of the Property Couch, very popular property investing podcast. And he's also graced our TV screens on location, location, location. So I've got so much to chat to him about. We're going to be unpacking his journey, some of his lessons along the way. This is going to be a two-part episode. So check out this first part. We're going to be talking about money management as well, some of the reasons investors get stuck and make sure you check out part two because that's where we get it into some models and frameworks for success and there's a lot of juicy things to the second part too. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now here is your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Bryce. Thanks for joining us today. Really excited to be chatting property. Hey, Jared. How are you? Good to chat to a fellow Sandgroper. Yes, I know you're a fellow Perth guy. Not everyone probably knows it about you unless they've read your book. How was it uh, growing up here? Oh, I loved it. Perth, Perth's a great place to uh, to grow up, I think. Um, I always really felt the isolation being the the thing that's serving you so well in a COVID world is being the most isolated developed city in the world. But growing up, I, I kind of did feel that pull to go to the East Coast and and check it out. But um, now I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a passionate Perth boy. Most of my family still is in Perth. I come back as often as I can. I'm, I love holidaying over at Rottnest Island. So, yeah, Perth is a wonderful place to be from, I think. Excellent. And, yeah, we're certainly enjoying our bubble at the moment. Yeah, well, you get, sure. to, you get to have a big crowd at the footy and we get to play it to empty stadiums. So... But yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. It's it's serving you well now. So yeah, yes, I, we, uh, we I, do I feel that to a certain extent. sometimes when uh, your East Coast markets are going gangbusters <laughs> and uh, we're recovering from our uh, mining downturn. So it, it, it does feel like we're in different worlds sometimes. It does, doesn't it? Because I always say Perth is, you know, one product, one customer, right? The big rocks that they send overseas. And in my observation, that's... That's effectively how the the Perth market's gone for the last decade. It hasn't mm. hasn't performed, you know, side by side compared to the East Coast. But there are times you don't have to go that far back to the mining boom when it was just on fire. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a, a more of a volatile market in Perth. But if you catch the timing right, it's wonderful. And if you catch the timing wrong, it's it leaves you on the sidelines for a bit. You know, there's some. I think if you pick, because there's so many wonderful owner-occupier-led spots in Perth, if you pick as an investor, if you pick those types of spots, it'll serve you. But if you play the uh, speculative investor game in Perth, it's a dangerous one. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about your background and how did, did, was there something that gave you a burning desire to create wealth? Because I know you've started out from more humble beginnings as well as me. I'm a humble, humble, sort of middle income, middle class family. My parents uh, grew up in Bibra Lake, 
My parents yeah. still live in Bibra Lake. My first years of life were in Quinana, spent some time in Whitegum Valley in year six back in 1986, and then we moved to Bibra Lake in 1987. My parents still live there now. I was always interested in working out how money worked. My parents were both working class. They both worked. My dad worked a couple of jobs. And so nothing came easy to us. My, you know, everything, my dad taught me the value of money. But I kind of, you know, I lived in Bibber Lake and I went to Leamy High School. So I had to, you know, ride over the uh, over the hill at Farrington Road into the easterly in the morning against the sea breeze in the afternoon. So I kind of always felt like my friends maybe always had a little bit more. So it intrigued me and I wanted to work out how that worked. And it wasn't until I was at uni, I watched a show back in the 90s called The Ray Martin Show when I was meant to be studying for uni, but I was obviously slacking off. <laughs> and Jan Summers came on the Ray Martin show and she had a whiteboard and she'd just written a book called Building Wealth Through Investment Property. And back then that was pre-Google, pre-internet, pre-podcast. Australian experts around then. It was very few resources to tap into. And so seeing her was like, wow. And then I remember thinking at the time, why isn't everyone doing this? And now as I've developed some experience, life experience, a bit of wisdom over time, I realized that your head gets in the way. But the mechanics of it are really straightforward. She said, the tenant and the tax man will pay most, if not all of your bills. And back then, it was all of the bills. You were a positive mm. cash flow for nearly every property you bought back then. So I was hooked. A mate of mine bought an investment property at 18. I kept on asking his dad questions. And then that really set it all in motion. And here I am sort of 20 plus years later, having personally and professionally been involved with property investment since. And was it always a, a smooth journey in the start? Because it so often... No. Isn't for all of us. And I know I've made my fair share of mistakes. Actually, the whole episode, a few back on my top two mistakes. And so we'd love to hear, good to hear if you've, uh, if it was always smooth for you. No, it wasn't. And I reckon one of the disadvantages of growing up in Perth for me was I didn't have a mature outlook on property. And what I mean by that is if you grew up in Melbourne or Sydney or to a certain extent Brisbane, but they're similar Perth and Brisbane, particularly back then, you have these fast paced, markets that are congestion driven. You have villages all throughout certain suburbs. Train is really important. And and so therefore you have this innate understanding around what you should focus on because you just know I don't want to be I don't want to be commuting. So therefore I've got to be near the train and I've got to be in these suburbs that sometimes pick themselves. Whereas in Perth everything was a car based city. So we would just drive around and if you live in Cannington or you live in the Golden Triangle or you live in Spearwood or you live in Rockingham, everything's commutable, right? So, And back then there wasn't a lot of congestion. So you just kind of, I fell for the mistake that you just needed to put your name on a title. And I think that's the biggest mistake that people can make now going forward, particularly in Perth when you have a bit of volatility. It's not just about having your name on a title. It's actually about having your name on the right title. Because if you don't and you haven't, you know, yourself, Jared, if you haven't bought the right property in a market that Perth's experienced for the last 10 years, you probably haven't made any progress going forward. So thankfully, there's in the last 18 months, Perth's picked up. But I think that didn't serve me very well. So my, my mistakes were just, I fell in love with a theory. I didn't fall in love with the bricks and mortar. So I just knew the very first that I was exposed to is by seven property uh, seven properties in seven years. Yeah. Because the reason being is in the eighth year, the first property would have doubled in value and you leverage against that value to fund a lifestyle. And then in the ninth year, you leverage against the second 
and the tenth year against the third, and so on. So I I just fell in love with that concept. That made sense to me. Properties go up in value. I go to the bank. I leverage. I they go up in value faster than I can spend. Therefore, even though I'm increasing the amount of debt that I'm getting into, that's okay because mm-hmm. I'm actually increasing the value more. So I fell in love with a concept on paper, and so then I just went out and just put properties in the portfolio. And I've since learned that that wasn't the right thing. So I, I've bought quite a few poorly performing properties. So the first half- We often of my, learn the hard way, don't we? We <laughs> do. We're in the game. We're in the um, game. And that's that's, that's hard. the hard bit. Because a lot of people don't buy, as you know, Jared, there's a very small percentage of the population that actually buy an investment property. Mm. And an even smaller percentage of that small percentage that actually go on and buy three or more. The stats say that 91% of all property investors stop at two and 73% of them only buy one. So it is a small niche that people do. So I just think, I look back at those experiences just by saying, hey, I got in the game. I had a go. I learned some lessons and I know a bit more about it now. Yeah. And why do you think it is that most investors get stuck at one to two? Because I've been diving into it previously on some episodes, but I think with the number of clients you've dealt with, the people that you've helped overcome various obstacles, I think it'd be really great to get your thoughts on why they get stuck. Yeah, I think it's around, we're all taught that debt's bad instead of there's three types of debt, horrible, tolerable, and productive, right? And if you if you have the difference between those three, horrible debt is for stuff you buy that goes down in value, credit cards, yeah. consumer items. Tolerable debt is the debt that you have on your home. It's no one else is helping you pay it off, but at least it's an investment in an asset that hopefully will serve as shelter and capital growth over time. And then there's productive debt, which you buy income producing assets, right? So I think the answer lies in the fact that people are scared of debt because they classify all debt as the same. And then if you think about, mate, I was born in 1975. So my parents, my mum was born in 1948. And my dad was born in 1939. So mum's a baby boomer, dad's pre-baby boomer. And if you think about what's normal for him, Buy a house, pay it off as quickly as you can. Owe no one, own nothing to no one, right? Mm. So that that comes into my world, and I I have to challenge that and go, why? Why is that so? But at the very early stage of that, I was thinking, don't get into debt, don't pay it off as quickly as you can, like everyone. So I think there's a combination of being afraid of debt, not classifying debt correctly, the types of debt correctly, and then once you get into debt, it can actually be scary, Jared. You know yourself, you, you've probably yeah. got a few zeros on your own balance sheet, right? And if you focus on the amount of zeros, you can get a bit wobbly. So, but Especially if you focus if on not getting the performance that you yeah. would Why like Why did I do well this? And, this is know, torture. It's not even going up in value and I'm servicing all this debt, taking all the risk. But if you focus on what it takes to service the debt, that number's smaller, that number gives you more confidence and it takes you away from the bigger price. So I think it really comes around the fact that a combination of those three things, and then we didn't talk about money growing up as kids across the dinner table. So what what conclusions have you come to? I think it's partly to do with the plan of, of not realising how many properties they might need and it all being seeming insurmountable from the beginning is a part of it. And then mm-hmm. I think there's challenges around financing and actually saving the deposits. And I think we'll get We'll have a good chat about money management in a minute. But for me, it took a while for me to work out how to have control of my money and how to make get those deposits aside. And for me, that that was and I've found different challenges at different points in my journey too. So 
asset selection and getting the right properties only becomes a problem when you're not in a steepward upward market. <laughs> yeah. So the market can be very forgiving when it's all going well, but then when the tide goes out, as Warren Buffett says, you get to see who's swimming naked and um, that's when asset selection is really important. So there's a, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle, but I guess you need to keep learning as well and a lot of people are just very static. So check out at year 12 or check out after university and don't pick up a book ever again. And you can get overcome these obstacles if you keep learning. I found in finding mentors and surrounding yourself with, with others that are doing it. All good points, right? And if you think about roughly 70% of the population own and 30% rent, just by that number alone, and that and that's had some shift, you know, there's some shift on the edges on that since. But if most of the conversations you're having is with other people who are buying a home and just the struggles of a mortgage, it kind of makes sense that you just think, well, everyone, this is what everyone does, right? So only only if until you do what you just described is to pick up a book or listen to a podcast or buy a course or whatever it takes to actually expand your mind, the majority of people aren't doing it. So it kind yeah. of makes sense that the majority of people wouldn't buy an investment property. And if they do, that seems like you've climbed Everest. Got my own house and one investment property. Not many people are doing that. Yeah. So the idea of getting two, three or four is mind-blowing. But I, I've got a view of build a career out of helping people buy three to five investment properties. Get your home, ideally paid off and buy three to five investment properties. And if you do that correctly, you can get a passive income that's 2000 bucks a week, which is in today's dollars is more than what most people are retiring on using super and, and a hell of a lot more than anyone who's relying on social security. So it's a simple plan. But and that brings it, us to your book quite nicely too, because I reread it recently. And uh, every time I do read it, it gives me, uh, you get other takeaways, don't you, when you go back and revisit things that you've read in the past because you're in a different place and the market's in a different place. And so I love that your armchair guide to property investing and I definitely suggest our listeners to to get it. It's a, a staple of every Australian property investor's library. It should be right front and centre there. So oh, I appreciate that, mate. But uh, you can go and get a free copy if you want at thearmchairguide.com.au. Um, oh, if, you, if you pay, or any of your listeners, if you go there, you pay for postage, I think it's $9.95. I'll send you a copy of the book so anyone can get access to it. But oh, That's great yeah. for everyone listening. Thanks for that. 2016, I, we, we wrote it. And some of the concepts that we talked about in here were, were actually quite different to the information that was being talked about at the time. So here mm. we are in 2021. You and I are talking on a podcast. I've been doing podcasting for the last six years. So people will now have access to so much more material that they couldn't before. So we wanted to try and start a conversation so that people, instead of, Jared, when I I was getting involved in this industry back in 1998, and at the time, all there was was imagery of guys, usually guys, sometimes there was a couple of girls, but usually guys standing out the front of a Ferrari <laughs> or jet or just those tacky yeah. trappings type things to try and lure people in. And that, that was, the, and it was essentially an autobiography of, you know, look how amazing I am. Read my, read my book about how amazing I am and hopefully you can yeah. try and um, get, my, out, but. get my risky strategies and you can fly a plane as well. Yeah. So, you know, on the front of our book, it, it's a very humble picture of me and Ben. There is no jet. 
There is no Porsche. <laughs> there is no yacht anywhere to be seen. And, and we were just trying at the time back in 2016 to try and change the conversation and give people information from a from two, two guys who were professional advisors and we wanted to speak to you in this book as if you were a client being advised by us. Yeah, you kind of feel like you're going through the steps and the process to a successful investment, don't you? That's how it, it felt. It is. It feels for me. So you're not going to find any stories about how I was in the south of France and I had this epiphany and then I bought a villa um, <laughs> and I flipped it and like there's, there's just no stories like that. It is basic ground level foundational principles that you need to know. And mate, I'm, I'm really proud of that. The pod, you know, the Property Couch podcast has since been able to expand on the book and create more frameworks and give people more information. But yeah, we, we were changing we were changing the dialogue at the time and hopefully that served a lot of people. And you've said you've reread it, so hopefully it's uh, you know serving you as well. Definitely. And a big part of that at the beginning is getting your foundations right. And look, I had to work really hard to be a good money manager and saver, and I mentioned that before, but did you find that others fall down here too and that's why you've included such a, a large section on it? Yeah, yeah, because I think property investing comes down to trapping more surplus yeah. and then once you've trapped more surplus, so not, I haven't said earn more income, I've said trap more surplus and once you trap more surplus, you've got two choices to make. Now that I have that extra extra money, do I invest it in the now or do I invest it in the tomorrow? And ideally, we'd like you to invest it in the tomorrow, right? So, but it really comes, I know I've spoken to clients who are on household income of $80,000 and they know where every cent goes. I've got clients who are on half a million and they've got no idea where it goes. Mm. And to be honest, the person who's on 80 and knows where everything goes is, is a far better money manager because they don't have any margin for error. So if you buy, if you're a bad money manager, and you buy an investment property that will be amplified. Yeah, <laughs> it will. It will give. It will put you into a world of pain <laughs> because because property investing is a game of finance. It's not mm. a game of bricks and mortar. And if you don't know how to manage cash flow, you are cooked. You will go into stress. You will probably have to sell at a from a position of yep. weakness. Yeah, the ones that unfortunately. We can often, because we're in property management, we've, we look after so many clients. Like, yeah, look, sometimes people do fall on harder times and they might not have the buffer there that others do, but then we can tell those that are calling us if the rent doesn't arrive that that week and it might just be that the tenant's paid the day after but they're still not behind. It just hasn't been transferred because it's missed our payout. And, you know, it can be incredibly stressful. I get it in their world's when they don't have the buffers in place and don't have real control over their money. And look, things do happen, I get that, but it certainly compounds the stress, doesn't it? It does. It does. So if if you can't trap surplus well, if you don't know where your money goes, it's not good, right? So you're right, at the beginning of the book, we we showed how to trap more money. We've, We've now written a subsequent book called Make Money Simple Again. And that is an expansion of the front bit of this book, Excellent. which basically gives you a very simple system to manage your money in ten, less than 10 minutes a month by setting up some structure. There's a book There's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Have you, have you come across that? Yeah. He basically says that if you want to go to the gym every day, the habit of going to the gym is not, not where you should start. You should actually start by making sure that your shoes and your, your running gear and all of that stuff is by the door the night before you go to bed mm, because as soon as that's done, 
the rest becomes downstream. You've got that there, you get up, you get changed, you go and get in the car and you get to the gym. So using that principle in mind, becoming financially free is not about buying an investment property. It's actually about going way upstream and getting a some architecture and some habits that go on autopilot around how you manage your money, whether you are a casual wage earner or a CEO of a Fortune 500 exactly the same, yeah. the way that you manage the money through some proven architecture that it just flows in that doesn't have to occupy your time and your energy and your effort. Well, then just by default, we'll actually trap more surplus because here's the deal. When you're at the point of sale, you're not pulling out your spreadsheet. So I'm about to buy a pair of jeans and yeah. I'm about to tap the credit card. Typically, most people tap their credit card or their phone or whatever they're using at the moment. And at that point, they never go, hang on, just wait. I'm just going to pull up the spreadsheet just and I'm just going to see, check how it's going. <laughs> and did I budget for these? Je- no, nobody does that, right? So what they do is they get to the end of the month, they go, there's 20 bucks in, I'm yeah. positive. I thought I was going to have a thousand bucks in, but I've only got 20, but at least I'm in front, move on next We've thing. got all our money together in, in one bucket usually and you, you hope that some money's left to save at the end. Yeah, but just- and, and- that's Never just leaving it to chance, right? It's yeah. not going to work. So I, I personally have one credit card. I have one debit card. I have one offset account and then I have passive loan accounts. That's it. It's not that complex. And then I have everything on autopilot yeah. and I, I don't use a credit card for discretionary spend. I use a debit card for discretionary spend. I know how much I can have in yeah, a, a- It's a good a, little uh, pivot on, I, I haven't thought to do that. So that, it's another well, it's called a seven day float. Control. It's really important. So let's say, Jared, that you spend 150 bucks a week on discretionary spending. You might spend 200, you might spend 75, yeah, doesn't matter. Let's just yeah. let's just call it 150 bucks. And what you do is you automatically put $150 into your debit card every Thursday. Thursday is important. Yeah. Straight into your debit card. And then you just go for the next seven days. It needs to last until next Thursday. And so you just so you don't have to micromanage your money. You don't have to put it in an app or anything. All you got yeah. to do is quickly know on the app on your phone, on your banking app, how much is left. So 150. Then Thursday night you go to the movies, so it takes out 30 bucks, or you got 120 left. Friday night you go and have some beers with your mates, so there's 50 gone. So you got 70 left. Saturday you go and get a pizza and so on. So you get to Tuesday and you go, oh, I got five bucks left. Well, what most people do on Tuesday is they go, well, I'll just tap with my credit card. Well, no. If you've got five bucks left, what you do is you open these things you've got in a home, it's called a pantry, and you go and actually <laughs> find the what you've got left and you look in the freezer and you actually make it last for two more days before you get paid your what we call the seven-day float. And that's how you manage your money. Because on the credit card, you're paying all of your bills. On the credit card, there's no discretionary spend there. You write to the bank and say, can you take out the due amount on the due date every month automatically out of my offset account so you never have to think about it. And so you just go through life managing your debit card, the seven-day float. And if you do that with any regularity, you'll find over a 12-month period you trap more surplus, which then we can go and play uh, the investing game with. Well, thanks for joining me today, Bryce. We've got so much more to cover. I'll have to get you back on a part two where we'll look at some of the models and frameworks for success and uh, we've got a lot of other juicy things to talk about. So I'll catch you on the next one.